Well, Father Anthony, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's. Christmas and Happy New Year's to you too, Father Harrison. How much ravioli did you eat? A significant amount. Of course, we had ravioli for Christmas. And then after a nap, I woke up and ate more ravioli. Then I went back to the uh, rectory after a couple days at my parents' house and then ate more ravioli. So, um, pretty good Christmas so far, to say the least. How about you? How much, ra- how much ravioli did you eat? I ate zero ravioli. That's a sad Christmas. But I had an entire sugar pie. Oh, right. So I saw pictures of the sugar pie. It yeah. does not look impressive. It doesn't look impressive, but trust me, the taste <laughs> is exquisite. Like, I'm willing to try it, but uh, the presentation is <laughs> not a, much to look at. It's it, Well, it's like I said, it's simple. It's like white sugar, brown sugar, a bit of whipping cream, and some vanilla melted into a pot, and you put it into a pie crust, and that's it. There's no topping, no pie topping, nothing. You just, it is what it is. So, yeah, so I went on Christmas Day after Mass is here. I went to my parents' place and had a, uh, I, I had a, um, I had, we had brunch together and opened some gifts. And I got uh, from them the new Zelda, or not the new, new, but uh, the Zelda game for, for my Nintendo Switch. Oh, yeah. And so I started, play- oh my gosh, it is a beautiful game. It is. Like I just. It, I also got that for Christmas. Yeah. And uh, I love the art style. I like it a lot. It's amazing. I'm like, this is, this is a beautiful game. I I've never played a game this beautiful before. So that's been really cool. And uh, then we went to my aunt's place and had dinner there. And then I came back here, and I had a lot of sick calls Christmas week. Unfortunately, it wasn't a very restful Christmas. I, I haven't really had a day off in about. A true day off in about two and a half weeks. Oh wow! It's been qu- it's been quieter at least, but I, sure. I, yeah. But every day there's been something going on, so I'll get I'll get some time off next week. I'm gonna or I'll have my day off next week at least. So yeah. So uh, I see I see that you're now a champion. I am. It's yeah. very exciting. So as I've mentioned several times before, myself as well as producer Nick are fans of professional wrestling, and for Christmas. He got me my own championship belt that has my face on the big metal plate in the middle. Pittsburgh's <laughs> okayest priest. It's got various other plating on it. And it is like the coolest single thing I've ever gotten. No offense to my other family members. I got many good gifts, but I have my own championship belt that he bought for me. And it is the coolest thing. Now, isn't there like four little medallions or whatever on it too? Yeah, so there's different like um, images on it. One is the symbol of uh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's crest. I know I'm not using the right terminology, Father Alec, but just deal with it. So one's Pittsburgh's crest, one's our diocesan crest. One is an image of, oh, it's our logo. Yeah. And the other is kind of like the OK symbol with the hand, which <laughs> the, works the on multiple levels. Sign, but it's a trad yeah, gang it's a, sign. It's the trad gang sign because that's how you would hold your hands, you know, during the Eucharistic <laughs> prayer. But it's also OK, so it works on levels. Yeah. And like, I, I opened the box with this in it, and I just stared at it for like ten minutes. Like this is the coolest thing ever. So whenever I do um, other people's podcasts, I now wear that belt with me, even though no one can see it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because everyone has to know, are, are you I'm not just it right a priest. Now? No, I'm not, because this is the first time in a long time I'm recording back at producer Nick's place. And so I didn't want to bring all my stuff with me. Now, I have to say, one of the cool yeah. things about that belt is my name is on it. 
it is on it. My name on the, is on uh, your belt because yeah. our names are on the logo. So I was like, I am on your belt. So when you are on your dying bed and you are looking at this glorious gift, my name <laughs> will be spoken to you through the belt. <laughs> Father Harrison, even if I did not have the belt, you would always be in my heart and on my mind in my dying days. So fear not. Well, welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm, I'm Father Harrison. And I'm Father Anthony. So did you get some other cool gifts? You had some yeah. other neat Christmas presents? So here's the thing. I got um, a Switch, which is very fun, um, and various games for that. I like it. I haven't played Nintendo games in a really long time. But something else happened recently for me. Uh, it was just a few days after Christmas, and I had a wedding for a classmate of mine in high school. So I had her wedding, and it was back at my old parish assignment. And let me tell you something. This is a pro tip. If you haven't gotten married yet, Nick and Riley, or other people. So if you haven't gotten <laughs> married yet, like the Christmas season, if you can swing it, is a really good time yeah. to get married. Because the church is gorgeous. You don't need to bring flowers. It's like I've had two of these weddings uh, or two Christmas weddings before. And they're just, it's a good idea. Anyway. And, and people are freer at that time of year. It's, yeah. You know, they, like they might your friends who are out of town, they're back in town for Christmas. So yeah. you don't have to worry about another flight or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. I went to the rehearsal dinner because I couldn't go to the reception because I have too many things going on Saturday mass wise. And uh, the bride came up to me and brought me a gift. And she said she had talked to someone else in my old assignment. And so that's why she got me this gift. And inside was a bottle of Glenn Levitt 12-year-old. Nice. So whoever gave that tip, excellent job. Nice. Excellent gift. Nice. I very much appreciate it. So nice. there you go. Yeah. Now, there was something else we did over the Christmas break. Uh, yes, yes. So our, our quest for video game greatness, I guess, continues. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a quest or if it's just something we do when we have some free time. Yep. Uh, and we uh, have been slowly getting better at Fortnite. Yeah. And we actually got a few victories, didn't we? We got a few victories. I had a game with, with five eliminations. Yeah. So we have to give props to um, uh, Peter. Yeah. Uh, what's, his, what's his Twitter name? It hot, we'll we'll hot tag him in or here. something like that. Yeah, 2S Petrus. So anyway, he uh, helped us out greatly, but you did very well in various games. And, uh, in some it's games. It's been a lot of fun. Well, yeah, in some games you were just terrible. Yes. But in some games you were good. That's exciting. Yeah, it was exciting. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. good. I'm getting a little bit better. I, I've discovered with this game I'm not very good at the uh, close-up combat I, because I just I have no idea where the shots are coming. I'm better at a distance. I'm better at sniping and coming up at the behind to do some support. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my uh, that's my better. That's that's where my skill set lies. I find. Excellent. So it's been fun. It's been fun to play with Father Dan, other people that we've met from Twitter. Yep. It's been good to like talk with them and just kind of do something casual like that. We, so we got to play great. a little bit with, with – we played with some we, – didn't we play with Blevins over the Christmas break? Yeah, we did. Yeah, with, yeah, uh, with times, Bonsai yeah. Bros too, right? With Sean. Yeah, shout out to Bonsai Bros. They are yeah. some of the most entertaining Sean people is, to listen to play. If you think Father Anthony is entertaining, then you have a very low standard because you obviously <laughs> hasn't, haven't listened to Sean. So. Yeah. <laughs> so if you think I'm loud or if I yell a lot on this podcast, you have just <laughs> no idea. So check out his Twitter stream or whenever he plays with uh, Bearded Blevins. So. Yeah, it was, it was, and he introduced me to the fish skin. Oh, yeah. So for people who don't know, you have... A character, not all characters, their abilities are all the same, 
but you get different looks for them, which they call different kinds of different skins. And one of them is this weird, freaky looking fish that Father Harrison found to be the funniest thing ever. So, so he's Sean. running around. <laughs> yeah, 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 fine, fine. But I expect better of you, Father Harrison. <laughs> anyway, so you paid money to dress Actually, up no, as a I fish. did. I had, I had the V-Bucks from At different tier levels. At one point in time, you paid money and you somehow used that to look like a fish as you <laughs> shoot people with shotguns in a video game. And that is ridiculous. Yes, well, you know, speaking of skins, mm. um, back in the Middle Ages, they didn't have paper. They would use sheepskin and, uh, and different animal skins to create parchment. And on parchment is what St. Thomas Aquinas wrote his Summa Theologica on. His Summa Theologica on. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is our transition into Summa Theologica. Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica We talk of Yeah, but you know what? We should write our tweets. Some of the better tweets, we should put them on animal skins. Right? <laughs> right. I don't want to offend anyone who, who doesn't like hunting or anything. For posterity? Yeah, but I, yeah, I do have a, a tweet of mine that's written in cuneiform on um, clay that mm -hmm. Father Alec got me. So why mm -hmm. not also do it on, on animal skins? We By could. the way. How was that for you a transition? So, you were so excited about how you managed to make a transition <laughs> that you screwed it up at the end, but I appreciated your joy. Yeah, I know. Me. I was like, oh, I just called the great one of the great works of our church's tradition a tweet. And yes. Yes. Although it's interesting. The way he writes his summa, it's in almost like tweet-like form, right? Every question and every answer, is, it's very small and, 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 and pithy. Right. What what is the summa if not a long Twitter thread? Exactly. Amen. Amen. So, uh, for my the first tweet I have is from Join Us the Brave. She has this awesome little tweet that I just thought is a great thing. Um, right. So it says this: Waste time this year. Go for long rambling walks. Write poems. Try a new recipe just because. Pray. Paint. Knit something. Read that big old book. Work on your novel. Our world is obsessed with productivity, but unproductive hours are the most soul-shaping parts of our lives. So my first question, Father Anthony, is what are you going to knit? What am I going to knit? Yes. I'm going to knit a... I don't... I've got nothing. I've got I got nothing. nothing. Yes, I got him. I got him. <laughs> Daddy! Uh, <laughs> it's a great tweet, though. It's... It, yeah. It's, it's, she's getting at uh, one of the books we should do for... Um, for the index one day is Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Because this is what she's kind of getting at is that we tend to get at this idea that productivity is where true value and where true personhood is found, right? This idea that what you are what you do, right? We ask at yeah. parties all the time, well, what do you do for a living? Because that's tied to identity. But she's saying something that it's actually the things that are a waste of time. The things where we actually, in a way, don't get anything productive out of them 
but the product, but just to do the activity itself for its own sake are the most soul shaping things we could do. And I think there is a great truth to that. And I think it's something that does that we would do a lot of good with. So I'm, I'm taking that one to do a lot more. I read it and I said, I need to do a lot more reading this year. I didn't mm-hmm. read as I mean, I wrote my thesis last year. That was part of it, but I need to, I need to do more reading this year. Yeah, and I, I agree because so much of what we value is based on productivity. Like, mm-hmm. what the good does it, this get me? And that translates so much to how we view ourselves as well. So yeah, just kind of that little practice of doing something just because it's good to do. Uh, there's nothing extra, nothing beyond it, not for another reason. Yeah, um, it's a good practice how just to be uh, a better human being, but also yeah. can help you understand more about the goodness of God as well, just by doing those little things. Exactly. I, I, you know, one of the, I read a book a few, many years ago that I will never recommend to people anymore because it actually ruined reading for me for a long time. It was Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book, which was recommended to me by a lot of people. And it ruined it for me because it, it saw reading in this more productivity. Okay, wait, time out, time out, time out, time out. So the book is Yes. How yes. to Read a Book. Yes. So like, I know what if your you didn't know how to read a book, how would you approach how would you approach reading the book? Yeah, the book is about how to approach different forms of of books. Like how do you how how ought one to read to get the most out of reading a history book or a philosophy book or a theology book or a book of literature and stuff like that. And it was very helpful in one sense, but it ruined reading for me because I felt like I always had to get something productive out of reading a book always. And so I could never just read a book just to enjoy it for its own sake, which got in the way of me reading literature because I'd almost approach it like reading a theology book, like, okay, what's the deeper theme at play here? What's all this going on? And I can't do that. So uh, one of my goals is to especially read more literature this year just and just to read it, enjoy it. And if something comes up, great. And if it doesn't, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say one more thing for me. It's so hard for me to read something just for fun. Yeah. Like it has to be something for my spiritual life or it has to be something for theology. It's so hard for me just to let go and read something that's good, but also read it just for fun. So I think it's good practice. Yeah. So this one is from Father David Hogman at Father Hogman. Modesty is not humility. An obvious sign of this fact is the most modest people are rarely funny while humble people are a riot. So what I want to kind of touch on that is that humility, humility is our greatest superpower if we accept it. That's theologically dubious, but there's something about humility, just realizing who you are, mm-hmm. not being afraid of putting on, uh, putting on airs or, or making yourself more important than you need to be. And it also gives you a vision of the world that is so much more grounded mm-hmm. that you can see the humor in it. So somebody like you know, Father Dan um, at Frocket Dan, he's, if you meet him, he's a very humble guy, but he's mm-hmm. also incredibly hilarious. Oh, yeah. Because he's not trying to do more than who he is or what he is. So I really appreciate that like connection between humility and humor. Yeah. And the idea that mo- uh, they used, I thought, I really appreciate what he had to say about the modesty thing, too. As a little side note, uh, Father David is a, di- is a br- diocesan brother of mine. He is... Uh, he's the pastor at Sacred Heart in Victoria. We went to seminary together. We've been good friends for a long time. So I want to highly encourage everyone who's on Twitter, follow him. Because he doesn't want people to follow him on Twitter. <laughs> so follow him to encourage him to increase his presence. Because he's so humble that he wouldn't dare say this himself. So I'm saying it for him. But yeah, no, I think... I, 
for me, one of the uh, one of my convictions about the sanctity of someone like Fulton Sheen is the fact that he could always like he could always poke fun at himself. Yeah. And that for me is, and that's why he could do it well and stuff like homilies and stuff like that is because he didn't take himself. The, the saint can't take themselves too seriously. If they do, then they don't. Um, they don't become. If you, a saint can't take themselves too seriously, right? So because they know who God is, exactly. So they and that's who they and, are. And some, I think for me that was always the greatest proof of Fulton Sheen's sanctity was the fact that he actually never took himself seriously. He was always able to poke fun at himself, and it's actually it. For me, it's as a sign that when I recognize I can't poke fun at myself about something, I'm recognizing that I'm not a saint in that area yet. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, it's a great kind of examination of conscience. So, yeah, I agree. Cool. Uh, at Sunny Bunch from our esteemed and favorite non Catholic podcast, The Sub Beacon, yes. tweeted this over the holidays Rewatching Return of the Jedi. The battle over Endor makes way less sense when you remember the fact that each X-Wing is capable of destroying the entire Imperial fleet with one well-placed hyperdrive jump. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, see, this he's is the right. problem. He's, he's right. right. I, don't know, I don't know how you can... If you... I don't know how you can enjoy the Star Wars cinematic universe... And think deeply about it. Like you really have to turn your brain off, which I'm good at and I can do. Yeah. But the things they've done with like the newer movies, like if you're going to enjoy any of it, you just have to take it movie by movie and not think deeply about it at all. And even for someone like me who can do that very well, it's, I read that tweet. I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's, yeah. That's I mean, tough. this is where the Star Wars nerds will come out and say, well, maybe they never thought of it before, and, and it was just a last-ditch effort, and, a, and a, it was an attempt to make – to. no one really ever thought of it as a military strategy before, but he's kind of right. And I think what the tweet really points out is the fact that he is – when you are creating movies within the context of an entire universe – every action has an implication on what has already been created. Yeah. And so are you undermining the rest of the stories that have already been deeply ingrained in people's lives by putting this idea into a movie? And I think it shows you too how lazy a lot of modern filmmakers are when they aren't, they obviously aren't, aren't thinking about these things. And you're just thinking, you know, I know with uh, the guy who directed it, it's all about subverting expectations. And he did that, but he also ruined an entire universe yeah. because of it. Yeah. Oh, man. I was going to so. say one more thing about that. Something about... Star- oh, Star Wars nerds. No, no, no. Star Wars fans will apologize and try to make reasons for this. But Star Wars nerds are always angry. This is true. I have some good friends who are Star Wars nerds. And yeah. everything about the new movies drives them insane. <laughs> so I just want to make that distinction. That's fair. That's fair. Cool. All right. So I have a tweet here that is from Father Brandon LaRoche, I assume, yep. at Padre Ben. Uh, at no, but you need to say it in a more French accent. Father Brandon LaRoche, uh, at Padre <laughs> Ben. Uh, he says this, and this is great because I don't know a lot about it, but I feel it deeply in my soul when I read it. He says, I will die on the hill of Mathean priority 
because the fathers knew more about the, com the composition of the Gospels than any modern critic ever will. Yes. Amen. So uh, what he's talking about is in, in recent times we've decided, or the academic community has decided, that Mark came first. Now, in the Bible, you'll know that Matthew comes first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And tradition says that that is the order in which they were composed. Um, so he's talking about that kind of controversy. And you know what? I'm with him on this one. So am I. And yeah. even from an academic perspective. Yes. Because this is one of the things that people, this is one of my big beefs with the historical criticism, is it takes as a priority and an assumption that doesn't exist in the early church or an even early that that cultures of the cultures of that time and it's this they're presuming it's a textual culture uh mm -hmm. right that oh i'm reading this i'm going to copy these words when i'm writing this text and so on and so forth it wasn't it was not a textual culture it was an oral culture because paper was not something that was available all the time right and so when you're saying all this stuff you're, what you're just act, and so a lot of scholars are saying well no marcus prior because he has he's the common thread between matthew and luke but i'm like but that's a, but you're basing it off a bad argument the argument no, yeah but i think the the bigger problem with historical critical method is that their whole idea the whole basis of their criticism is the following ah come on there's no way. Like, that's the entire philosophy of the historical yeah, critical method. It's yeah. based on doubt well, and mistrust. No, that's not... Well, I wouldn't go that far. I would. And I just did. That's fine. You just did. But I but disagree. Like, I mean, but no, like, I know. Like they're going through, like, what even is, like, historical in the Gospels. One right. of the criteria is, oh, this it is an embarrassing thing. Yeah, it can't be yeah. a miracle or this is an embarrassing thing that they recorded. So that has to be true. And it's just like that whole idea is you're assuming so much that the Christians had an interest in lying about what happened. Right. And when the philosophy of the religion is so based on truth incarnate. So that bothers me, just that whole perspective about it. That's fair. I, I you know, well, first I would argue, well, Pope, Bened Pope Benedict and Jesus of Nazareth affirms the historical critical method. Yeah, but to does a degree. he though? Yes, he does. Yeah, but he, but he barely does. Yeah, no, that's not true. Yes, it is. No, it's not. <laughs> But he also tries to offer corrective to it because he recognizes within a large portion of the historical critical community is the presumption that faith can't be reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so he goes after that and he has absolutely, he's absolutely right to. Um, but, and he also goes against the idea of reducing the idea of the scriptures to something that's to making it just a historical document and he goes into this at length in a lot of other areas as well but he says sure. that it has a it does bear a fruit when it can help us to understand more deeply the place and time and context out of which the gospels came out of yeah but that's it though like it's just a historical context he really i think he just pays lip service to historical critical method and as much as it gives us some context of time and place but not at all how you uh, it's not quite um, how you interpret the text. That's kind of just a little bit of a backdrop. He's uh, the fruit of that book does not come from his historical observations. It, but I mean, most of the scholars he quotes are historical critical scholars. He picks out the parts. I, I just really don't. I think. 
<laughs> like you read that book it's not a historical critical book no it's, it's not not primarily right. but it's a tool right it's a tool within the context of and i would just i guess all i'm arguing is that it's a very minor tool i don't think it plays as big a i part. don't disagree i don't necessarily i'm still pondering this one a bit i also just want to hate historical critical method that's just what i want to do i just want to hate on it i'm just going to be a hater take that well you, you know something at least we have we, at least we have followers who don't hate us that is in fact, true. they love us so much that they support us. So here's Pont Patreon pontifications. Patreon pontifications. You support us. We read your tweets. So please consider donating to our Patreon. Money goes to paying for our equipment and podcast hosting fees, as well as paying producer Nick a just wage for all the work he does. Any money collected that goes beyond that will be donated to the missionaries of charity. If you are part of our $5 pastoral council tier or $10 church lady tier, you have a chance at having your own tweet tweet talked about on the podcast and this week's tweet comes from uh denise brickler who's at denise brick and she shares uh this tweet f is sorry is this a retreat no i think it's one of her tweets yeah yeah father anthony pasted the entire tweet in his uh in our document here so i i can't yes. tell <laughs> wait let me let me let me read it for okay. you so i got it in front okay. of me All right. so she says catholic school leaders when priests are present in our Catholic schools, it is such a gift to our students. Priests visit classrooms, celebrate mass for students, hear confessions of students, walk school hallways, eat lunch with students in the cafeteria, kickball at recess, hashtag Catholic education at N-C-A-T-A-L-K. So in this tweet, Denise is really talking about how important priestly presence can be in Catholic schools. And I absolutely agree with this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important, right? It, it's, it's hard because the schools are part of our parishes and everything like that, but they can't be the sole focus either for a lot of us. Like right. Rake parishes, number one, always. It but has to be. If you're trying to increase families and stuff like that in your church, in your parishes, if you're trying to propose the ideas of faith to people, the school is a, is a real hotbed for evangelization. Yeah. Right. I'll say a few things about schools. One, Catholic schools are not the only way that we can offer Catholic education. There Correct. are a lot of parishes without Catholic schools who can mm -hmm. offer excellent Catholic education. Mm -hmm. um, There's also homeschooling. Can, also homeschooling. Um, and when you can have a Catholic school, I think most people would agree there's something special about that if you can have one. Um, but when I talk to people... Uh, who went to Catholic school and find out I'm a priest and whatever assignment I have has a Catholic school, they all ask me, do you, do you ever visit the school? Do you ever visit the school? And I said, oh yeah. And they'll tell me the memories they have about priests visiting their classrooms. Hmm. And these are, these are not practicing Catholics, yeah. but they speak very highly of the priests who visited their classrooms. It has such an impact on hmm. kids. Um, and uh, it, I mean, I think it has a lot of impact on, on priests as well. It's, I mean, it's a joy to visit classrooms. One, because the kids are excited to see you. Maybe it's just because you interrupted class and they don't have to learn for a few moments. But a lot of times they're just like happy to see their priest talking to them outside of mass. Yeah. And just kind of those experiences and those memories uh, can do a lot to kind of keep you attached to the faith and give you a good impression of it. Right. So I think it's an important thing what to do. It, what what is the most memorable question you've been asked at when you've gone to visit a school? What kind of toothpaste do you use to brush your teeth? Really? Now, I'll, I'll tell you why. Yes, because please. Because I was giving I'm, my I'm... opening. 
I'm confused. <laughs> so I was giving my opening spiel to the students. And the opening spiel goes, you know, I've heard every single question. I'm not going to be offended by any question. And if you were to even ask me something that I had not been asked before, I'd be really impressed. So some student racked his brain and thought, you know what? I bet he's never been asked this. And he was right. So I had to give it to him. So that was the first thing that popped into my gotcha, mind. Gotcha. But, I mean, overall, um, if you get like even like sixth, seventh and eighth graders, especially seventh and eighth, like they'll start asking deep philosophical questions about God. I'd go even younger than that. Yeah. Yeah. I find grade four, late grade four, early grade five is when they really, when the critical mind really starts to work. Mm-hmm. And they'll ask questions that to us will seem like simplistic, right? Like, uh, well, you talk about how God is the creator of all things. Then they'll ask the question like, well, then who created God? But uh-huh. that's a great philosophical question, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, or they'll ask questions. They'll even ask me questions like, uh, what is the, if I've had grade fives ask me if the creation account is true, how is evolution true? Great well, question. Yeah, grade five, right? yeah. Great mm-hmm. question, right? So, and you have to answer it according to their level, obviously, but there are ways to ask it. I, I would say for me, the, actually the most, the most memorable question was one I was also very proud of my response was, Oh yeah. I was shocked because this is a grade three class and this kid puts up his hand. And he says, father, if God knows everything, how do we have free will? What? I was like, grade three. This is, right? from, this is from third grade. All right. So I was like, what do I say here? I was not expecting this. I'm not prepared for this. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't be. But then I asked them, how many of you have seen the Lego movie? And they all put up their hand. Right. Excellent. I said, okay, good. Do you remember the scene where Emmett goes into the real world? And they said, of course. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And I said, you, you notice that the, he's not actually the principal actor at play here, that there's the dad and the son. And actually they're the people who are orchestrating the whole story. But is Emmett not Emmett in the really, even though they know where the story is going to go in the end, mm-hmm. does does Emmett lose anything about what it means to be Emmett? Does he lose his freedom in that? Does he not have a part still to play in all that? And they said, well, of course he does. I said, well, that's how God relates to us. And our God knows everything, <laughs> but he includes us as part of the story. Yeah. And he, he leads it to us to help determine if we want to reach his end or not. They said, well, that makes sense. I said, yeah. I was like, how did I just pull that one out? <laughs> yeah, hey, there you go. But I was really it's happy. A, I was really happy with that one. So It's the great test. If you yes. can explain complicated subjects to um, younger people or people who haven't de- dealt with those subjects, yeah. it really helps you become a better teacher too. So. Absolutely, absolutely. So so thank you, Denise, for being a Patreon supporter, and thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And, you know, while we, 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 while we can't visit every Catholic school and while we exhort people, when we are in our classrooms, we're exhorting them to the faith. We can exhort all of you through Pesperidal exhortations. And now it is time for Presbyteral exhortations. Oh yes. yes, quite good, quite good. Indubitably, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Yes, yes, quite, yes, quite. So, so I think we have a new challenge. Yes. We need to make the transitions in two clauses or less. Oh, okay. Let's see. If we, right. can, I, I think we won't, but that will be the goal. Yeah. Cause I'm so short winded and precise, you know, it's <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you. 
Hit me. What is the most memorable homily you've heard? The most memorable homily I heard was the homily on the day at the mass of my ordination. And the, I remember the refrain of the homily. And the refrain of the homily was be bold. And hearing that from my bishop uh, was really encouraging. And it's something I still think of, like when I, when I think about whether or not I should preach about this thing or whether or not I should try um, a new idea um, or whether or not I should, whatever. It's like this permission the bishop gave me to be bold and to go do what I need to do for God and for his people. Hmm. So that, that just stays in my mind. For me, I mean, my, my ordination homily is very, very memorable and it's up there for sure. But I still remember, I just remember the first time being really struck by a homily and it never leaving me was just prior to the Eucharistic Congress in Quebec in 2008, they were doing a youth gathering in Quebec City. And so each diocese was to send a few young people over for that. And so I was chosen for my diocese to go. And we were at, uh, where were we now? We were at one of the pilgrimage spots in Quebec, which I'm forgetting its name at the moment. But uh, we, Cardinal Collins celebrated mass there for us. And he, his whole homily was about how we must become fire. And he had this great story of the ancient desert fathers of a young monk going to see an elder monk asking what he needs to do to for to attain perfection and mm-hmm. he says well you must fast all this time he goes i fast i you know I, essentially he's doing all the stuff and then fire shoots from the hands of the elder monk and he said and he says well then you must become fire and this was the whole this was the whole homily of of cardinal collins that we youth must become the fire that sets aflame the hearts and minds of people, not just in Quebec, but in our own diocese in this whole country, that the flame of Christ's love must be burning through us so that we can set this nation on fire with Christ's love. And I just, the way he presented it and everything, it just stuck with me and I never forget it. And it's always that first thing that I always go to Mm -hmm. whenever someone has asked me what my favorite homily is. So I, I just asked this because I think it's important. I think we hear a lot on Twitter about preaching, especially over Christmas time. I saw some interesting <laughs> we hear we hear a lot of complaints about preaching yeah. basically I, I got... very few people very few people go onto twitter and say you know what that homily was enthusiastic and informative and orthodox and made me rethink it made me repent it made me grow closer to jesus christ no one ever tweets about that no. the only tweet about sock puppets or <laughs> preaching things that aren't the gospel or father danced uh or whatever so yeah. <laughs> if you hear a good homily, maybe tweet about it. Exactly. Would, you know, yeah, tweet, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Tweet some good. Tweet some good, folks. Tweet good But yeah, things. no, I, I heard some stuff. I'm thinking to myself, dear Lord, no wonder these people never come back to church after Christmas. It makes you angry, doesn't it? Oh, totally. Especially totally. as a priest? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about preaching today. And before we do that, I think it's important just to give you a little sense about what preaching formation looks like. Mm-hmm. Because... It's odd because really in the Catholic Church, we both tend to lift up and also put really down preaching, right? We Go demand on. of it. We demand of it absolute excellence. We want to walk away every time with something that's really touched us and really challenged us or whatever. But at the same time, we find ourselves saying, well, it doesn't really matter as long as the Eucharist is there, right? 
Yeah, yeah. You know I mean? what I mean? Those are the two forces that play in our minds when we're talking about preaching. Now, we have to remember, yes, obviously the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, but preaching has a privileged place in the church, and it requires good, extensive formation. Mm-hmm. I think I would be honest to say that while I felt my formation in seminary was really good, it could have used a bit more homiletic uh, formation. So I'll give a brief overview of what I did in seminary, and maybe, Father Anthony, you can share what you did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for us, it was pretty much nothing for the first couple of years. And then what happens is we, in our seminary system, we go do a year internship. So what would happen is we would be asked to preach at some point once a week, not on Sundays. And it would usually be outside of like either after the closing prayer at mass or before mass began. So because we cannot preach because we're not ordained at the time of the homily. Yep. Um, so that's what I would do. That was my first step was on my internship year. Then after that, we would take a class on homiletics and we would also once every couple months preach in front of the seminary uh, and at, at adoration on okay. the upcoming Sunday's gospel. Quick time out. Yeah. How did you get, how did you personally feel about preaching to the seminary? Ah, I, I was excited because I like to talk. Because <laughs> that's what people, a lot of like, priests will say this and seminarians, and that was my experience of it too. Because I was pretty confident in my abilities because I mean, of course I am. But uh, preaching okay. to, I'm, I'm okay. Preaching to a seminary audience because all the guy, if you're a seminarian preaching to seminarians, all those guys think they can do what you're doing better than you're doing it right now. Yeah, and that's a tough audience to preach to. It's true. I, I will say because what would happen is they would actually fill out feedback forms and then oh, they would submit it. Man. Yeah, and they would submit it to the formation team and then they would collate it and send it back to you. And the feedback was pretty underwhelming. Like, in the sense, like, it didn't give me anything really concrete to work on or anything like that. So, yeah. yeah. Anyways, and then when you're a deacon, obviously, you get chances to preach as well. So, Mm -hmm. in the seminary, we would preach at weekday masses, and then we would preach at our parishes maybe once a month or something like that. That's the extent of formal homiletic training for us. Yeah. And then I would add put a little addendum on that, though, too, to say that your theological training ought to always be at play in your homilies. And so in that sense, there is a larger context of formation as well. But yeah, Yeah, maybe we'll talk about this later. I I think the most important part of homiletic formation is first your own spiritual and human formation. Mm -hmm. Like rhetorical skills are important, become secondary. Um, But just, I think our training in homiletics is more or less similar. I had two semesters. The first semester you had like a homiletics class where you just read and learned stuff about homilies, I guess. And then the other half of that first semester was preaching. And then the second semester was all just preaching and critiquing each other's homilies week after week after week. So you're writing a homily pretty much every week and then Mm -hmm. preaching it to the class, the class critiques you. Which was the most miserable class ever. <laughs> because Look how, people are listening to your homilies to gain spiritual edification. They're not looking to you as a kind of authority. No, they're listening to your homily so they can rip you to pieces. And we did. We were terrible to each other. The critiques yep. were awful. Blood was everywhere. And so it was very difficult to preach to that kind of crowd, but very helpful. Yeah. 
Cool. So let's talk a little bit about what preaching should look like in the context of Mass. Now, there's two types of ways to preach at Mass. On Sundays, we are required to do a homily, right? But during weekday Masses and other liturgical celebrations, we are allowed to preach a sermon. So there, there's a distinction here. A sermon is something that can be either educational or, or um, preaching uh, on a certain topic that you want to. It has nothing to do with, with the day, the texts of the readings or the Mass. The homily is a specific type of sermon in which it is required to preach on the readings of the day or the festivity of the day or on the collects and prayer or the propers of the day. That's a, that's an interesting distinction because I haven't heard that before. So where did oh. you get that? Like, so in would you say seminary that's... seminary formation? Okay. Because I've never heard... So when you preach... Just to get our terms straight. Yeah. So when you preach at mass, yeah. even when you preach at daily mass, it's still a homily, right? If I'm preaching on the text, but I'll give you an example. Uh, once in, uh, when I was in the cathedral mm -hmm. for Lent, I preached on the eight evil thoughts during weekday masses as a series. That was not a homily because it wasn't preaching on the text. It had nothing to do with the day of, it was something for spiritual edu edu edification of the people, uh, but it was a sermon. It was a sermon. See, I, I, I like this new distinction. I think it's good, but it's kind of ruining what I think is a more important distinction, which is homilies are Catholic and sermons are Protestant. No. <laughs> you have blown my mind. You have blown my uh, just, mind, Father Harrison. Just read, my worldview has changed. Just read the Office of Readings. It often says like a, a sermon from Pope Leo I or something like that, you know? I mean, can you really trust the editors of the breviary, Father Harrison? Can you? Can you even trust yes. them? Yes, 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 you can. Oh, okay. All right. Can you Continue. trust? Can you trust me? I mean, just for the sake of the podcast, yeah, I'll trust you. Let's okay, go. Okay, thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, like I said, homily must be on the text or prayers of the day. So the propers. So the propers are the opening prayer, the prayer uh, over the gifts, and the prayer after communion. You can actually preach on those texts, and that's okay. And maybe even the preface. That's a little gray area-y, but I would say it's okay depending on the occasion. And now here's the thing. This is one of the things I see a lot of. People say, you know, we're not hearing a lot enough catechetical stuff in homilies. We're not being catechized enough in homilies. We're not being taught enough in homilies. The homily is not by its nature a, cate a catechetical tool. It can have catechetical moments, but the homily is not primarily a place of teaching. Rather, the homily should build up our religious sense. It needs, it's meant to be something that allows the, to, it gives life to the texts that we've heard, mm -hmm. to let them draw, to particularize them to the situation that we're in, and to draw the people into a deeper contact with the word of God, which is Jesus Christ. That is, it's meant to draw us deeper into God's life. That's the whole purpose of the homily. So I want to read you a quote. This is from a textbook that we use in our homilies class, and it was actually it was, it's fantastic. It's called "Why Preach," by F Peter John Cameron, a Dominican. Okay. He used to be the editor of Magnificat, mm -hmm. and it's a fantastic, fantastic book. I highly recommend it. I have I have underlining everywhere. It's it's great. So, anyways, he quotes from the Pontifical Biblical Commission from 1993 on the interpretation of of the Bible in the Church, and he says this document says this. The presentation of the Gospels should be done in such a way 
as to elicit an encounter with Christ who provides the key to the whole biblical revelation and communicates the call of God that summons each one to respond. It's supposed to elicit an encounter with Christ and to call people, and it should communicate the call of God that we are to respond to. That's the purpose of a homily. Hearing about, um, you know, the fruits of the Holy Spirit and having a whole homily just on that, without it eliciting an encounter and responding to the call of God, then it's not really a homily anymore. Yeah, I think this is this is the one, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in my opinion, it's the one, I think, unequivocally good reform that happens liturgically uh, after mm-hmm. Vatican II uh, and with the Novus Ordo, is that before, the preaching was not really a part of the liturgy. No, it they was would almost, actually take off their maniple. Right, because it was a break from the liturgy, yeah. and then you taught a thing. And they and would with, do announcements. Yeah. So it's kind of like this weird intermission. Like sometimes we get cranky about the intermission of uh, the sign of peace. But anyway, so I don't want to get too into the weeds with that. But <laughs> but we're not controversial I, on this podcast at all. No, never. Uh, but I really love the idea and the experience of the homily being liturgical, the homily being a part of the worship. And I think that's one of the, one of the better reforms that happened that I would, even with the tradening, I would want to keep. I would agree. And I think when you look at the early church preaching, it was this way. It was always based, what is happening in this moment? Yes. What is God communicating to us right now through these readings, through this feast day, etc.? Right. And that's why I, I, I go on to say that, that preaching it has a sacramental character, right? This is something we've talked about a bit, actually quite extensively. Yeah. Uh, but that those present are drawn into the mystery that's being proclaimed, like that we are participating in the mystery being proclaimed. Like, so it was the, on Sunday, it's, it's going to be the feast day of the epiphany that we're drawn into that mystery yeah. that we are present that day in that mystery. And, and the, uh, a lot of the church fathers will preach just like that. They'll be preaching to you as if that day is this day. Exactly. So like Holy Saturday was not this thing that happened in the past. It's today. Now exactly. we're experiencing it. Mary's experiencing it. This, everyone's experiencing it now. Right. And that's kind of that. You can only do that in the context of the liturgy. Right. Where time and space get all wonky and everything. Um, but it's just this way of entering deeper into Christ, which is what a part of worship does. So anyway, exactly. I yeah. really like that. Yeah, so do I. And then if you, if for those who are faithful listeners, listeners, remember my episode, our episode on the Kerygma, this is what we were kind of getting at, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That this is it, that, that what happened in the past is now made present today. We are there, they, it's, listen, listen, I, I encourage you, listen on the feast day of the baptism of the Lord. Listen to the prayers, listen mm-hmm. to the preface. It's about drawing us into the mystery that day. And the church fathers understood the sacramental character of preaching, that it's God speaking to us today, that this mystery is being made, that we are present, the past is made present to us today, and that God is trying to draw us deeper into his life through this mystery today. And I think this is a style of preaching that's like slowly gaining, regaining its its foothold in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, what, in a kind of broad stroke way, what homilies ought to be and should look like. Yes. Now let's let's hit some of the hot topics about it. Yeah. Gimmicks. Uh, uh, uh. 
I'm already, I'm, I'm already right. getting all fired up. Okay. Okay. So what do you what do you mean, Father Harrison, by gimmicks? So I I have, I have kind of three in my mind: props, dramatizations, and jokes. Mm. So the what, unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. <laughs> jokes, you have to bracket a little bit. Yeah, I agree. But let's. So we'll get to that one last. But props and dramas. So I don't, why do you think? They ought to have no place. Because, uh, first of all, props in the homily draw more attention to the prop than to the message often. Yeah. It often becomes, and I've seen it happen time and time and time again, it draws the attention to the prop and how clever the idea is. Yeah. And it becomes a kind of egoism uh, focused on the priest. Like, oh, our priest is the one who uses props and brings out this sort of thing like it becomes more about the priest in in a very you know, than about the message um, yeah. i think that's it the temptation and the occasion of that happening is so great that you shouldn't do it but also because the homily is liturgical um like your build-a-bear is not a liturgical <laughs> instrument exactly like your, your elf on the shelf is not a liturgical instrument it mm. has no place in the liturgy so for those yeah. two reasons yeah and it's, it's the same thing with dramas too right i think we have to remember that uh, the the liturgy is primarily a, a it's a rational worship as, as pope benedict really likes to focus on it's a worship in the word mm-hmm. and so the emphasis the ap- a- absolute emphasis of liturgy is actually on word proclaimed spoken and heard so what do you what do you mean by drama though like let's say you preach a homily or let's say you, you've said the gospel or something like that. And instead of saying a homily, you have people dramatizing the gospel to get the message across. Oh, uh, okay. So the, the most time, the most I've seen this is actually around Christmas where in, in place of the homily, there is a Christmas pageant or something yeah. like that. That's not okay. Yeah. yeah. No, like, you know, that's why I always say you can do a Christmas pageant. Just do it before mass. Yep. Why not? That's fine. It's I'm not against pageants. Just, but it's not okay within the context of the liturgy. When we do these things, it also then undermines the, the the liturgy itself. Yeah. And it says it says to people, well, if he if he can do this, well, then why can't he do that? And why can't he do that? And it becomes about something that we do instead of yes. what God does. Right? It's yep. not the liturgy is not our work. It's God's work primarily, which we participate in. And so we are its servants, not its masters. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Jokes. Now we talked a little bit of this already when I talked about Fulton Sheen, because he was the master joke teller with preaching. Actually, yeah. he, he did it. He told jokes. But I think one of the most common things I heard over Twitter or Christmas was the really bad priest jokes. Yeah, this, this was a running. This was actually a running joke in my family. I said, you know, guys, I'm so excited to get ordained because after the bishop gives me my faculties and my assignment, he's going to hand over a folder with all of the priest jokes. And I'll finally have access to every single one. You must use that folder extensively. I do not. <laughs> but I think like we're talking about or like the uh, humor in a homily is actually a, a good thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you see Jesus, if you read the Gospels carefully, you see him using humor and irony. Yeah, he chose Peter. Particularly in John. Yeah, you, you know, uh, that's a good thing. But when it's a stand-up routine yeah. or when um, it's a canned joke that has nothing to do with 
the homily, then once again, there's this egoism at play. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a this is a huge pitfall, a huge trap that the enemy lays out for the priest to make the liturgy and make the homily about him. Because yeah. it's it's all set up like I've got the mic, you don't, and it can be very tempting to fall into that. And the whole joke telling to make people feel good and to get a positive response. If that's the goal of it entirely, then it's more about the priest than it is about Jesus Christ. Plus, if we think, if we tell this joke, maybe it'll, people think, it'll help people see me as being normal, approachable, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. One of the points they made on Twitter is, yeah, but how effective has that been? How many people come back to church the next Sunday because of a joke you said on uh, Christmas Mass? Yeah. Right? And you know what? <sighs> This is a huge thing because I use a lot of humor. Not mm-hmm. a lot, but yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I use a lot of humor in my homilies. It's ra- it's not in, in joke telling so much, but it's in pointing out human things that are silly. For example, sin is actually a very silly thing if you think about it. But that's usually just to so that people will listen to when I dive deeper into the homily. Exactly. Yeah, and it's, or if you're making a like, it, it has a rhetorical place, right? Yes. It, it's it it has a place for persuasion where if you're getting a little heavy just mm-hmm. to break things up a little bit. It helps. Like I remember at Christmas, I was preaching, I was kind of preaching about, is this story true, right? Let's, okay, let's yeah. forget everything else. Is, is this, did this really happen? And if so, what does that mean? Um, and so half, I, I can't remember, I said something to the effect of, well, you know, it would take hours for me to go through every objection as to why it's not true. I can only give you a few things, but you know, or I said, or I said, then it took me hours, but, and since the next mass isn't for three hours, buckle in. Right. Okay. Yeah. People laughed and it was good because then it, it, it opened them up mm-hmm. and it helped them hear. And plus those who are regulars yeah. aren't laughing because they know I'm long winded. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but you like, know, so you're, right you're there, like, it's a, it's a bit of a, yeah, but that right there, it's a, it's a quick thing. And it's not, yeah. you're not dwelling on it. You're not telling out this long knock knock joke. It's just something to pick them up and you're, and you're jumping right back into it. And it's unexpected. You see, yeah. a good joke should never be expected. If you start your homily with a joke and everyone can tell Every by the way you're delivering, time. it's a joke. Yeah. It loses its power. Hmm. It loses its power. And then it becomes more about, oh, I wonder what joke father's going to tell this week. Rather oh, than, and I've, I've heard people then what talk word about is preachers like preach that to my yeah. heart today. So mm-hmm. humor has a place, right? Humor and has also, a place, but it needs yeah. it. It takes skill and effort to place it properly. And if you can't, just be okay with the fact that you're not going to have any humor that Sunday, and that's okay. And you can just draw people into the homily by your sincerity, by the mm-hmm. love with which you preach. You don't yeah. have to be funny; you just have to be sincere. Yeah, and that will that will strike people. Right. Um, but anyway, we'll get more yeah. into that later. Go ahead. So now. I, you know, we, there's a lot of criticism towards homilies. And I used to be a major critic of homilies. I still am. I still am to an extent. <laughs> I've gotten a little bit more charitable because now that I'm a priest, I, you know, it's important for people to understand the struggles of preaching regularly too. Yeah, yeah. Right? It, it's hard, folks. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> In seminary, they tell us that you should spend 10 hours a week preparing your Sunday homily. I think that's BS, by the way. It's hard to do too. You, you like some days you're just you're, you're sitting there two hours before mass starts you're like oh my gosh what am I going to say today <laughs> right that happens too but that I also think this because I heard I heard um, uh, like one of our professors who overall I like said he spends eight hours every week on the homily and I'm like you're spending too much time on the homily 
like the, it's it's going to become either too academic or too precise or there's not enough room for the spirit now i will say maybe there are maybe that's just not how i personally work maybe there are people that works and it's good but part of me suspects that eight hours on the homily is too much you might spend eight hours during the week praying about the readings yeah like that's different i think that's than different. working on the homily yeah I, I would say anywhere three you know well two to five hours for homily prep is probably a kind of ideal but I agree. here's the thing this yeah. is where it gets tough okay it gets repetitive you, you yeah. start getting more and more into the cycle every year you say okay I, especially around the end of the ordinary time and the beginning of Advent, it's like, okay, we get it. Jesus is coming again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like five weeks of Jesus coming again. We it's get another it. <laughs> week and Jesus still loves you guys. Yeah. You know, <laughs> doing it daily. Like, I mean, I preach off the cuff if I preach during the weekdays. I don't really mm -hmm. do any prep for it. I just say, oh, this is a neat idea. Let's preach off that. Um, par busy parish schedules can get in your way. When you have two funerals and a wedding on a Saturday and you still have to do your Saturday vigil mass, it's really yeah. hard to get things going. Mm -hmm. We struggle with the idea, how much of ourself do we share, right? Mm -hmm. And also, at the same time, how much, how, how, how we should be forgetting self as well when we're trying to, to preach. And also, because at the heart of preaching is to knowing the audience that you're preaching to. Yes. And that takes a lot of work. And what and it takes a lot of adjustment for both the people and you, especially when you're like in a new pair situation. It, it takes a long time for there to be a click between a priest and his parish. Because it's, the homily shouldn't just be what you want to say. It should be the fruit of prayer of what God wants to speak to your people today through the readings. Mm -hmm. Right? And that takes a lot of knowing of parishioners a lot of suffering with them, a lot of hearing their sins, a lot of just socializing with them to really know what to say to them. Yeah. I mean, that's what really makes the homily an incarnate experience. You're not preaching for Twitter. You're not preaching, just pulling these ideas out of the sky and throwing them at empty people. You are speaking God's word to the actual enfleshed people right yeah. in front of you. That is your duty in preaching. Yeah, because like I, one of the one of the biggest criticisms I see a lot of times on Twitter is people say we don't need to hear enough homilies on on all these moral outrages and stuff like this. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, but if we're yelling in homilies all the time, is is not gonna convert people to Jesus? At least today, it might have at a different time, mm -hmm. but today it's different. Yeah, like today you have to use a lot more honey than vinegar. Yeah, right. So. Just because you want more of this in preaching or that in preaching, does it? You have to also remember the, the, it's a homily; it's not a sermon, and it takes. Yeah, it's and, funny because yeah, people talk yeah. about how they want more fire and brimstone. Yeah, but like, how about just more truth? Like, why this fixation on a certain type of homily? Why not just on preaching the gospel yeah. and the truth in whatever form that takes? Yeah. It seems like a lot of times people focus on these superficial things thinking that that will make the homily better, but that's not yeah. what is actually important. Well, that so that gives me a question. What about hellfire and brimstone? Is there a place for that today still? I very often, I'll do it so often that maybe it becomes common, but like I will say things like, you're either going to heaven or hell at the end of the day. You know, um, I'll say that often in my preaching or other like hard statements that I'll throw in there. 
I won't dwell a whole like a long time with them very often but right. I'll have them constantly in there so that people first of all it wakes people up you know when you say stuff like that and also I mean if you do those things with love if you're talking about hell if you're talking about the cross if you're talking about these like more intense things if you do it with love and you don't do it as this self-indulgent thing that you're just like yelling at people because you're yeah. not a like, good person people accept it you know, sometimes I've given like comments like, wow, is that too harsh? Or was I too strong yeah. on that? And it's oftentimes that that will, I'll get the most positive feedback. Hmm. Like, thank you, Father. We really needed to hear that. Um, yeah. It's because I'm hopefully not being a jerk about it. It's not, I keep coming back to this. Is the homily about you or is the homily yeah. about God's word to God's people? I think that's more and more, that's what makes or breaks preaching. Yeah, because like, for me, um, it's, as a pastor, you go through a whole range of emotions towards your people. <laughs> yes. The priest DMs have priest, heard this acutely priest, this week. Yes. <laughs> Particularly the pastor, for sure. And you get angry, like oh, yeah. any parent would with their kids. Mm-hmm. And like I always ask myself this question, am I, am I saying this because I'm angry and I just want to get this off my chest to them? Or is this coming out of a place of love? Now, anger comes out of love sometimes, obviously. Yes. But it shouldn't be the primary motivating force towards what we have to say. So it always, because there are things I want to just yell at people sometimes and say, you realize that you've committed a mortal sin by not going to mass on Sunday. Yeah. And you can say that. Yes. But it should come from a place of love and not out of a place of you idiot, you horrible person. Because here's the thing. In the end, I'm younger than most of my parishioners. And so mm-hmm. they're not going to take it as a fatherly care, but as some young whippersnapper who thinks they know better. Yeah. So you can say, yes, Matt, not going to mass on Sunday or on a holy day of obligation. It's a mortal sin. But why are you saying that? Exactly. Because you love your people and you don't want them to be separated from God. Exactly. And so that's the place and spirit it should come from. If it's just anger, don't say it. You see, because I think a lot of times the hellfire brimstone stuff comes from a, a place of anger out of a priest. And that's yes. not a healthy place. No. So briefly, let's talk. I, I got a little list of do's and don'ts, and maybe you can add, subtract yes. to it. All right. So do's. It should be reasonable. Maybe not academic, but it should be reasonable. Mm-hmm. Not fluffy. It should have some substance to it. Yes. Speak to people's experience. Like, like you may not speak to, like, by that, I mean, you need to know the experiences of your people to know what the word needs to say to them. Mm-hmm. Third, consider the m- subtle counter arguments that people may not even be conscious of, but that's at the play at the back of their minds and give a reasonable answer to that. Always consider your audience, preach to the text, and my opinion is 10 to 15 minutes. You know, I used to have an opinion on this. I do not time my homilies. I don't even know how long I preach. Yeah, Mass usually ends up being an hour or slightly under. And I think I'm okay with that now. Yeah, I mean, that's I, for me. For me, personally. it's the same thing too. I, I, my ass is maybe about an hour and five minutes because we do both species here, and that seems to add a bit of time. Mm-hmm. So about an hour and five minutes, and that's I'm happy with that. I think that's fine. Yeah, I, I think sometimes even priests focus too much on the time limit. Yeah, and then if that becomes the deciding factor whether or not the homily is good, then something else is going on that's wrong. Yeah. Um, when people say the homily was too long, they mean the homily was bad. Um, Sometimes, sometimes they just don't want to listen. 
Well, then maybe they should. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What, 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 would you, what would you add to the dues? What would I add to the dues? Do re- I'm going to focus a little bit maybe more on the interior. Do yeah. realize that if you're a priest or if you're preaching as a deacon, but particularly if you're, you know, uh, just to focus on priests, I don't care what you think of your preaching abilities. Jesus Christ chose you to share in his priesthood and he wants to use you to speak to his people. So no matter what, he's going to have words for you. And I would encourage priests to always trust in that. Uh, And there are times where you go up to that, you've been studying, you've been praying, you go up to that ambo not knowing what you're going to say and really angry at God because like, come on, help me out here. But sometimes that's what God wants you to do to sometimes preach your absolute best. I think do trust in the Holy Spirit because this is not just a rhetorical exercise. This is an act of the Holy Spirit. Preaching should be. And then let me see. What's one big don't for me? I'm just going to repeat myself. Don't focus about yourself. Yep. You need to, part of that opening quote you talked about, about becoming fire, mm-hmm. fire isn't focused on the self. Exactly. It's energy and light and heat going out. Yeah. And that's what you need to be as a preacher. Yeah. And I would just add to that, no corny jokes ever. Yeah, I still love that uh, skit from SNL. Uh, oh, the, the Saint the Joseph's Christmas, Christmas Mass spectacular. What's it like? Like the world's yeah. softest joke yeah. and the yeah. world's and softest laughed. Yeah. So it's the joke is back in Jesus's day, the three wise men traveled uh, a long distance to find Jesus, but they didn't have MapQuest. <laughs> and yeah, that don't. is, but that is a great. That's actually a really funny joke because it encapsulates perfectly the corny joke. Right, right. It's a very meta. It's a very meta moment. No moralism. Yeah. Right? Moralism is the idea that we're just talking about morality qua morality, but we're not a faith about moral moralism. We're a faith about Jesus Christ out of which morality mm-hmm. comes out of. So if, if, if your moral teaching isn't rooted in Jesus, it's not, more, it's not Catholic moral teaching. Yeah. Okay? Also, also, I would say ignore all distractions. So there can be a temptation when a cell phone... Co- you know, goes off or something yep. happens because stuff is always going to happen to make a joke about it. If you have any doubt or any hesitation with what you're about to say off the cuff, just don't say it and just yeah. keep preaching. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then third, my third don't is don't do teaching only homilies because that's not a homily. That's a catechetical lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before I, I end with my last question, um, because we're running out, do you have anything yeah. else you wanted to talk about preaching? Oh man! So you I just retweeted. I recent. I know. I recently retweeted, which are basically preaching fortune cookies, um, and so I like a lot of them. I think here's the biggest thing. I really don't think you can read your homilies. You can write them out, but I, unless you're, even if yeah, you can't read your homilies off a piece of paper. You can have your notes in front of you, but if you're reading them word for word off a piece of paper. I don't think you can do that anymore. I just don't think you can. I struggle with that for one reason. If I don't have a piece of paper in front of me, yeah. I will preach for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can have a piece of paper in front of you and you can work off it and you can use it. But if people tell that you're reading to them from a piece of paper, they're just n- not going to listen. I, I really think that. I don't disagree. It just it takes a lot more work to preach without a text. Oh, I disagree. If 
if you're long-winded like I am, it takes a lot of work to keep myself on track. Sure, sure, yeah. I think there's different struggles for different personality and preaching types, for sure. Because, <laughs> like, the way I, I, I preach when I preach, if I have a text in front of me, which I often do, but the way I print it off is so mm-hmm. that I'm not really looking at the text too often, but mm-hmm. it keeps me on track. Okay. Yeah. Right? I, yeah, so, like, every sentence tool. is broken up, and I, right. but I, I say everything that's on the page. But I'm barely looking at it because I just glance down and I look back out. I glance See, down. Yeah, I look but back that's out. not reading the text. That's, oh no, okay, that's different. Okay, that's okay, preaching. Okay, okay, okay. So that's my big thing. Okay. Like if you're reading monotone off a piece of paper, yeah, you yeah, just yeah. can't do it. And I would encourage um, you can you know priests who do that, just start slowly paring down your text. I think is helpful. Slowly, week after week, start just taking less and less notes, or just have sentences mm-hmm. or ideas, and practice it because mm-hmm. it, that part is a skill. Yeah. Preaching off the cuff, I really do think is a skill because yeah. in the beginning I could not do it. Um, now I, I never have any sort of text. I, okay, of course, I go over things, I pray about things. Yep. Um, but just to make sure that you're not reading, and okay. I think everyone can do that. Yeah. So, okay. top three pre- preachers that you've heard. Um top three preachers that i have heard or have read it the, you can i, you know, I will throw one in of red my, there one of my 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 home uh my pastor now and my pastor growing up was an was and is an excellent speaker um his homilies were never terrible and every once in a while he would really knock one out of the park so just my pastor I had growing up was a good preacher yeah um also the homilies i heard from um another one of my uh pastors when i was young but i've heard him since i've been older um cardinal DiNardo can preach the church fathers and preach the scripture in a way that I have never heard anyone else preach them. Like he's going straight into the scriptures, but he's doing it in such an engaging way. And with his like raspy voice, something about that really mm. moves me. And then, um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to cop out here, but uh, I, Fulton Sheen is captivating. Mm-hmm. He's a captivating preacher to watch and to experience. Um, so yeah, cool. Yeah. I just a little interesting fact on Cardinal Donardo. Apparently, from what I've heard, he only reads the Church Fathers. That's all he reads. I, I, I've heard that well. Yeah, I've heard that. That's well. all he, he reads. Through, he yeah. he, go, he reads through them, and then when he ends, he starts them over again. I'm like, <laughs> so that doesn't surprise me when you made that comment about that. So for my three, it's Fulton Sheen too. Uh, yeah. I think he is the man who we could really learn from about what preaching should look like. He's the model. The second one, I've heard him a couple times, but also just reading them as well. Pope Benedict, I think preaches, he's probably the best modern preacher alive today. See, I've never heard him preach, but he's, like I've read his text. Well, here's the interesting thing. He's not a dynamic speaker. Yeah. But his words have a piercing quality to them. I agree. I think it's hard for us in at least the, the North Americas, if you will, yeah. to listen to that. Like I, uh, one of our auxiliary bishops, excellent content yeah but not an enthusiastic i mean he's also incredible you know an older guy and i i feel people around me not listening to him when he's just pouring out pure gold with, with his words interesting so uh, but anyway so well interesting thing about the whole enthusiasm thing as someone made that comment to me this weekend or uh, yesterday at, at holy mary mother of god i i'd preach without a text i was because uh marian feast days are very easy to preach on yeah and uh and they said we just love your enthusiasm. Like that's the most captivating thing when you preach is we can just tell you just love what you're talking about. And I think that's always an important factor, I think, is you yes. should love what you're talking about. Anyways, and the third one is also a local guy, Father John Laschick, who is my mentor. He's the priest who brought me back into the faith. Mm-hmm. He's the reason I'm a priest. 
he's the guy whose preaching and pastoral care really formed me to be the man I am today. So uh, I, I miss listening to his homilies for sure. Cool. I, there's yeah. a lot more we can say on this. We should. We'll have oh, to do, we, well, I could. We could do like three more podcasts yeah. straight about preaching. Well, it's a great as I'm looking at Father Anthony's notes, I'm like, oh wow, he's got a lot of stuff to say. So maybe he'll, we'll do another one one day, and he'll he can do. Uh, I'll just explain each and every yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we went over time. You know, just like any good homily, we went way too long. And so because of that, uh, because of our preaching, sorry Tommy, we can't have you on this week, but maybe next week. Thank yeah. you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me at Father Harrison. You can find me at Father Sharapa on Twitter. You can contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. So thanks, everybody, and God bless. Peace.